Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we're uh, coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. Uh, which is an event that is often referenced as a pretty pivotal moment in American history, and it has spawned certainly endless debate about conspiracies and cover-ups and what actually happened. And there are an endless array of websites to visit if you love digging into the conspiracy angle. I don't know about Tracy. I know I myself have never really been. Like, I'm fascinated by it, but I'm not one of those people that's really obsessed with the whole thing. When I was a kid, I was really into all kinds of like the true crime kind of conspiracy. Yeah, well, kids things. love a question mark. You yeah, know, they love a not certain angle. Yeah, I, I remember like plowing through my grandmother's Time Life books on yeah. all kinds of subjects along this line. Yeah, I mean, uh, even though there have been at various points on the curve uh, statements that no, no, this was solved. A lot of people don't believe those statements um, or don't uh, adhere to that mode of thinking. And so, it, I mean, it's a huge, huge topic. And today we're actually just going to talk about the assassination itself on a pretty fairly basic level. We're not going to include all of the many facets. We couldn't even begin to dig through all of that and all of the pro and anti-conspiracy evidence in one podcast. I mean, that could be a series and has been for some people. Uh, but our focus today is on one of the witnesses to the assassination. And it is a person who remains rather shrouded in mystery, even 50 years later. Yeah, it's kind of incredible to me that, that there can have been someone obviously present at so high profile an event. And we're still not sure, still not sure. what the story is there. Um, so first, we're going to talk about the assassination just in brief in terms of like broad stroke. We'll hit some detail points. Yeah, kind of a refresher for people who are steeped in American history and for our many listeners who are from elsewhere. Yeah. Or we'll even, you know, younger listeners that maybe haven't gotten to this yet. Uh, and it's like I said, it's a basic rundown. It's by no means comprehensive. We've really pared this down to the elements and details of the event that are most relevant to today's topic. So on November 22nd of 1963, uh, U.S. President John F. Kennedy's presidential motorcade was in Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, en route to a sold out luncheon at the trademark where the uh, president was to speak. And he was in that motorcade when he was fatally shot at about 1230. About 45 minutes after the shooting, Dallas police patrolman J.D. Tippett stopped 24-year-old ex-Marine Lee Harvey Oswald to question him. Oswald fit this basic description of the suspect that the police had been given, and Oswald shot and killed him. Uh, at 2.15, Oswald was then arrested for the shooting of Officer Tippett. He was apprehended in a theater where he had fled after the shooting. And at 7.15 p.m., Oswald was arraigned for Tippett's murder. And it actually wasn't until after midnight at 1.30 a.m. on what was now November 23rd of 1963 that Oswald was arraigned for the murder of JFK. They hadn't determined that he was their suspect until he had already been in custody for killing a police officer. While Oswald was being transferred from the city jail to the county jail on November 24th, nightclub owner Jack Ruby shot and killed the suspect. Uh, Ruby's indictment for Oswald's murder was two days later on November 26th, and he was found guilty and sentenced to death on March 14th of 1964. Jack Ruby ended up dying of cancer in 1967 while he was awaiting new trial after an appeal of this conviction. 
So that's the very short version. That is, in a nutshell, <laughs> the assassination. Uh huh. There are uh, certainly many, 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 many more details that we could go into, and resources and lots of videos people can watch online. Um, as many people probably know, uh, Jack Ruby shooting Oswald actually happened on live television. Yeah. So there is footage of it all over the internet. Which there is. is- it's not particularly grisly, thankfully, if you're sensitive to that, but it is still unsettling to kind of see that all unfold in a very chaotic. It's a little frightening, obviously. Um, so it's out there if you're interested in, in more details. Yeah. Immediately after the shooting of JFK, investigators, of course, began questioning bystanders. Anyone who, who could have witnessed what had happened, anyone who had taken photos or shot film, Anyone who could provide any clues as to who had shot the president. Uh, Photographs and films that were taken by witnesses were developed and analyzed by the authorities. So it became clear in all of this that one of these witnesses had never been identified. She's in the famous Abraham Zapruder film, as well as other films and photographs. Uh, That famous film we talked about in our... Louise Alvarez. Yeah, Louise Alvarez was one of the scientists who evaluated that film to try to figure out exactly what had happened. And this woman in question uh, was wearing a brown trench coat and a headscarf, and she filmed the motorcade as it passed down Elm Street. And unlike other spectators, she didn't run when the shots were fired. She kept filming. So she has some additional footage from a, a unique angle that people might not have otherwise seen. Uh, and then after that, after the shooting had happened, she moved across the street, uh, crossing Elm towards the famous grassy knoll, along with a lot of other people that were in the crowd. Uh, some have speculated that the crowd was sort of looking for who the shooter had been. But if you look at it, there's also a little bit of it seems like they're just confused and looking around in general, like they're not even quite sure how to process what's just happened. So because of her location on the south side of Elm Street during the assassination, the film that this mystery woman shot would have been almost a mirror to the Zapruder footage. And uh, it is worth noting that she was not the only person shooting from this angle. An AC engineer named Orville Nix also captured the event on film from the south side of Elm. Uh, but her vantage point also would have included the book depository where Lee Harvey Oswald shot from. And because of the triangular headscarf she was wearing that day, which is similar to those often associated uh, with elderly Russian ladies, she became known as the Babushka Lady. Uh, And her identity has been hotly debated, actually, for decades. The search for Babushka Lady includes a possible imposter, allegations of a cover-up, of course, uh, and a lot of fierce debate. But for several years after the shooting, no one had any idea who this woman could be. And before we get to the only person who's really claimed to be her, so let's get back to the babushka lady. So as Tracy had said right before the break, for many years after the shooting, no one knew who this woman was. But in 1970, that all began to change. Uh, A woman emerged to claim the identity of babushka lady. And that woman was named Beverly Oliver. In an interview with J. Gary Shaw, who is a researcher and a writer of several books about the assassination, including one called Cover Up, the Governmental Conspiracy to Conceal the Fact about the Public Execution of John Kennedy, Oliver had said that she had been there on Elm Street the day of the shooting, and she had met Shaw by chance uh, and mentioned that she had witnessed the assassination, and apparently he sort of felt like he had accidentally stumbled upon this gold mine because people had been wondering who that person was, and she just offhandedly said, oh, yeah, I was there. 
And he was like, wait, are you this person? And she said, yes. This raises quite a number of really important questions. <laughs> like, who was this woman and why had she been silent for so long? And also, like, why now? Yeah. So, uh, you know, she does. She did mention offhandedly in that meeting, allegedly, that she just didn't want it to be a big public thing. Uh, but one of the other things that's problematic is that some of uh, the aspects of her life caused people to question her credibility a little bit. She had been a singer and a dancer, though she is pretty adamant, not a stripper, at a Dallas burlesque club called the Colony Club from roughly 1961 to 1966. A lot of sources you'll see will say that she was working at the club in 63, but she said in subsequent interviews that she worked there until she was married in 66, and she had worked there four and a half to five years. So that's why we do the 61 to 66 range. Uh, and the important thing is that the Colony Club was right next to the Carousel Club, And the Carousel Club was owned by Jack Ruby. Beverly Oliver claimed to have been close with Jack Ruby and that she had worked for him occasionally on a freelance basis, not in his club as a normal performer, but as a hostess and a cocktail mixer for after hours parties. And she described the Carousel Club as rather sleazy in comparison to her uh, main place of business, which was the Colony Club. Beverly Oliver was married briefly to George McGann, who was also associated with the Mafia, and was murdered in 1970. So, which is another reason people kind of don't give her a lot of credit. Um, you know, she just, she does have a little bit of seediness in her past. Yeah, these all feel like things that like a, a defense attorney would be using to try to undermine someone's credibility. Right. You watch a lot of procedurals on television. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Oliver would have been 17 at the time of the assassination. And uh, in one of the questions of like, why didn't you come forward? She says that she did, in fact, walk across the street to the grassy knoll after the shooting, along with others, because she had seen official looking people there and she expected to be questioned. But no one approached her. So she left. So it's a little bit of a shrugger at that point. Kind of like, yeah, all right. You didn't approach them or? Yeah, that was my question. But I also can't claim that I would know the mindset of a person who had just witnessed that horrific event. I'm sure there's a little bit of shock involved. So I don't know how a normal, a quote, normal person would react. Right. Just part of the mystery. So according to Oliver, it wasn't until three days later on November 25th when she finally went back to work at the Colony Club and then that she was questioned. She described two men with FBI credentials waiting for her at the club, and they asked about her film from the day of the shooting. She said she had it in her makeup bag and turned it over to these two men, and she asserts that one of them told her, well, we want to take the film and develop it and look at it for evidence, and we'll get back to you in a few days. Then she said that no one has seen the film since. According to Oliver and conspiracy researcher Gary Shaw, All government offices deny ever having had possession of this film, and it's never surfaced anywhere. Yeah, and this particular story of how her film was taken is one that people point to uh, and kind of pick apart because it's shifted a little. There have been times when it has been suggested that it was two FBI agents and others where she's not sure if they were both FBI and... Uh, there has been some speculation that there were people walking around with fake credentials trying to do potentially seedy things or cover up things. Uh, so we don't really know. Uh, and the, the film sort of being MIA, it doesn't help matters. No. But there are additional problems with her story. 
uh, she made several claims that really turned out to be a little bit problematic. Yeah. Number one, nobody else has been able to corroborate her claim that she was actually at Dealey Plaza on the day of the shooting. And at the same time, no one has been able to place her anywhere else either. Yeah, she doesn't have anybody that could say I was with her or I knew she was at place X, Y, or Z. So it's really just her word as to where she was. Uh, she also asserted at one point that she had chosen a spot near a man and his son on Elm Street in anticipation of the motorcade passing by. And if you see photos from that day, there is a man and a young boy. However, that man, who was identified as Charles Brem, had mentioned in an interview that he and his son had first seen the motorcade at the corner of Maine and Houston, and that they had then run over to Elm just in time to see the motorcade pass by again. So he couldn't have been standing there beforehand when she said she took up her position near this family. Um, There have been people that have said, like, this is obviously a case of someone looking at a photograph and then putting together a story based on what they see. And that she's saying, no, no, I took I went and stood near these people when they weren't there to be stood next to you prior to the event happening. Right. Well, then there's also the question of would you actually remember that piece of it? We like, don't know. Don't really know. So then we get to the part where uh, Oliver claimed to have used a Yashica Super 8 Zoom camera. But that did not exist at the time of the assassination. She's talked about this several times and tried to address this as a criticism. We'll kind of get into that in just a minute. But her detractors have never found her explanations for this to be very satisfactory. Uh, yeah. Oliver then later identified one of the men who she said took her film uh, as Agent Regis Kennedy, who was, in fact, an FBI agent. But Kennedy was actually in New Orleans on the day that she claims he came to the club. She also said that about two weeks before the shooting, Jack Ruby introduced her to Lee Harvey Oswald at the Carousel Club, referring to him as my friend Lee Oswald of the CIA, which uh, not really standard operating procedure for people who are supposed to be operating in secret to announce that fact to other people and then be introduced that way. Yeah. Hi, my name's Lee. I'm a CIA spook. Well, and- <laughs> Like, I, I remember what a huge, huge deal the, the Valerie Plame scandal was. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an enormous thing. Yeah. To, to have leaked that information. My understanding, I'm not in the CIA to know, but my understanding is that you don't really go around blabbing about it. In a nightclub. There's usually a, a, back, a secondary backstory to what your job is that gets told. But again, I'm not in it. I don't know. Uh, uh, Oliver also said that Janet Conforto, who was a dancer at the Carousel Club, she went under the stage name of Jada, had witnessed Jack Ruby introducing Lee Harvey Oswald to uh, Beverly Oliver. But Conforto had given interviews shortly after the events immediately surrounding the assassination, and she had explicitly stated that she had never seen Oswald at the club. So once again... Her uh, Beverly Oliver's account really contradicts what other people were saying. Yeah. And then we get to the physical nature of what Beverly Oliver looked like. The stature of the babushka lady compared to what Beverly Oliver looked like at age 17, they don't quite match up. There are even debates over whether different images that people have claimed are the babushka lady are all the same woman. 
but the images mostly appear to be somebody with a thicker build than Oliver had at that age. Yeah, most of them. She looks like more like a middle-aged woman that's a little bit heavier, um, whereas Beverly Oliver was a dancer and very fit. Uh, and in pictures and films from that time of Beverly Oliver, you can see that she's a very lean woman. So there's that. However, there's also the fact that the woman was wearing a trench coat. Yes. So it obscures the figure. It's not always clear. Well, and I know I have a couple of coats that I put on and go, wow, this makes me look, I look like a snowman. <laughs> <laughs> and Tracy is a lean girl. Uh, so there are other discrepancies, and they've all been analyzed and picked apart and supported and refuted uh, and argued over by Beverly believers and Beverly detractors. Yeah. Uh, and before we get to the next bit about how this really affected Beverly Oliver, uh, we're going to take a brief moment So back to Beverly Oliver. In an interview with Mobile, Alabama paper, The Harbinger, in May 1998, Beverly Oliver mentioned how frustrating it was that people didn't believe her. And she also asserted that Dan Rather, who's the only member of the press who was allowed to see the Zapruder footage early on, was part of the cover-up and that his career skyrocketed in exchange for his involvement in perpetuating this deception to the American people. Yeah, that whole interview, I mean, it's with like a smaller paper, but she really kind of it comes off as she feels very victimized by all of this, that there is a cover-up and that she particularly has been purposely discredited because she somehow, you know, has this information like about Lee Harvey Oswald knowing Jack Ruby and being in the CIA and that it's kind of all been a smear campaign. And the reason that she uh, points to for saying that Dan Rather was part of this cover-up is that after seeing the footage for the first time, Rather described what he had seen live on television. And it's not entirely accurate to what's actually in the film. And in his book, The Camera Never Blinks, he actually mentions these inaccuracy uh, of his account as being the result of relaying rather shocking information uh, he has, you know, he's still in shock from the president being shot. He is seeing this horrifying footage of the president being shot. He then had to run several blocks to uh, do the broadcast and relay this information. And he was doing it without any notes. So he says it's just one of those things where he did his best, but there are problems with it. Uh, whereas Oliver points to the discrepancy and says he was clearly lying. Did you notice how good his career got after that? It's all a cover up. Also in this same interview, she was asked about uh, Gerald Posner's book, Case Closed, in which he discredits her whole story on the basis that it changed and that she claimed to have used a camera that didn't exist in 1963 uh, and her assertion that she was introduced to Lee Harvey Oswald by Jack Ruby and that Ruby introduced Oswald as being with the CIA. So uh, he pretty much discredited her whole thing based on these definitely problematic uh pieces of of her story. Yeah. Uh, And I'm going to read a a chunk. It's kind of longish, but it's her response. And it just kind of gives you interesting insight into uh, kind of how she has been dealing with these things uh, as they've come up. One, she said that she never actually read Gerald Posner's book. Uh, And the interviewer in this, uh, this article where they do the interview actually reads her sections of it. And this is her response. She says, well, first of all, I would like for him to tell me how my story has ever changed. It has never changed. I never said that I used a Super 8 camera. That came from a man named Gary Shaw in a book that he wrote called The Cover Up. 
I might have said to him, and this was 1970, Super 8, meaning 8mm. All I know is that it was a prototype camera that a man I was dating who worked for Eastman Kodak by the name of Lawrence Taylor Ronco Jr. gave me as a present the September before the president was killed in November. A brand new camera, a magazine load, and I had to send these little envelopes to Rochester to be developed. That's all I know about the camera, and it was a Yashica. When this came out about the camera, I called Yashica in New York and spoke to John Storch. I don't know what his position was, but he was very excited to do research on the camera. Posner is right. That camera was not available to the general public in 1963, but it does not mean that I could not have had a prototype camera of it. I'm not saying it was Super 8. I don't know what it was. He also made a statement, and I have it in writing, in talking to his supervisors and people of that time, that they felt like probably if I had used the word Super 8 in an interview, it's like people going today to get something Xeroxed. After they came out, they just became the nomenclature for any kind of an 8mm camera. She's so tired of talking about that camera, I think. I can tell. <laughs> um, yeah, she's... Um, I mean, I can appreciate... I don't know if her story is true or not. If it is, I can only imagine how frustrating it would be to have people go, I don't believe you, I don't believe you, I don't believe you. But at the same time, there's a lot of convenient... Yeah. nebulousness in the details. And at this point, it's been so far back. Mm-hmm. And there was time in between different interviews. I don't, I don't know that it can ever be sorted through. In 2003, 40 years after the Kennedy assassination, ABC News published polling results that found that 7 in 10 of the Americans polled believed that the killing of John F. Kennedy was a plot. Uh, although they had varying degrees of conviction. Yeah, some were sure, some were pretty sure, some were, I think, probably. Yeah. So all of those got counted in the, the 7 out of 10. Yeah, so a, a plot and not the work of just a lone shooter. Uh, of of those people, 68% believed also that there had been a government cover-up. Only 32% of the people polled accepted the 1964 findings of the Warren Commission uh, that determined that Lee Harvey Oswald had acted alone. And at the end of the interview that we were talking about earlier uh, in 1998 with reporter Gary James, James asked Oliver if she had had any regrets. And in response, she said, I'll tell you, there are two things in my lifetime I would change if I could. One of them would be I would not have been on the grassy knoll November 22nd, 1963. The second thing is I would never have opened my mouth. However... She has gone on to kind of make a career out of being the babushka lady. (laughs) Um, In 1994, she worked with writer Coke Buchanan and wrote a book about her story called Nightmare in Dallas. And she still makes public appearances as the babushka lady. Yeah, she did one. I don't remember where it was, but last month she appeared kind of as part of a lead up to the anniversary. Yeah. So October 2013 is when. Yeah. Uh And literally, I I just want to point out once again, every person mentioned in this discussion that we've had today has been called into question in terms of truthfulness and credibility, Uh, as has almost anyone who has touched the story, made a documentary, you know, written a blog post on the Internet. Uh, It's uh, tricky. uh, It's a tricky thing to want to talk about, I think, because if you do the second you have an opinion, there is already going to be a herd of people that want to disagree with you and argue it. Right. So it's uh, it's a dynamic that's constantly kind of adversarial, which is pretty fascinating. It's everyone trying to discredit everyone all the time <laughs> yeah. about everything related to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Yeah. 
in her testimony before the United States of America Assassination Records Review Board in November of 1994, she concluded her testimony with the following statement. She says, but I would like to make one statement to you and to anybody else who is interested when all the pictures or all the pieces of this puzzle is put together. And I have faith enough in my government and in my country to believe that eventually it will all be it will be all out. All of it will be given to the researchers and the research community, unredacted, unedited, undamaged in any manner. And whenever this is all put together and we really have the honest picture of what happened that day, no one more than Beverly Oliver hopes I have to stand up to America and apologize. That, I'm not sure what that means. That left me scratching my head. And it's one of those things that I was surprised. I mean, I granted him not like surfing all of the various conspiracy theory boards and the various uh, historical analysis boards that people really do deep dives on a lot of this. But it's not something that comes up very often in most of like the writing about her. And it's such an odd statement that I... Yeah, it's a really odd statement because it was a, a testimony before this review board. Yeah. Presumably it was given extemporaneously, right? Yeah. You and I both know from doing this podcast, sometimes when we are speaking extemporaneously, ridiculous things that make no sense come out of our mouth. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, the part about no one more than Beverly Oliver hopes I have to stand up to America and apologize. It just rings odd. Yeah, it's really strange. I mean, it it follows this questioning about the discrepancy of her camera model description, but it it's unclear whether she means like she wants to apologize about saying the wrong things about the camera or just in general, which seems like that doesn't make sense in the context of all of this unredacted, uh, you know, pieces of the puzzle that she hopes magically all come together at some mm-hmm. point. It's just, it opens up like a whole new can of worms. Where it's like, Beverly, what are you talking about? What are you apologizing for? Right. But I don't know. You know, will we ever know the true identity of Babushka Lady? There's no telling. There yeah. are so many crazy theories. Not, I shouldn't say they're crazy. There are theories. We don't know what's true. Right. Well, and it, it's the big question of if it isn't Beverly Oliver, then who is it? Yeah. Uh, you know, is it just a random person who somehow was in such a media blackout that they didn't see or hear any of the many requests for all witnesses to come forward and anyone who had taken film. Right. Uh, Or someone who had some clear reason not to want to be questioned. Yeah, there have even been people that have theorized that, in fact, Babushka Lady was part of the whole thing. Uh, You know, why didn't she run away and stop filming when this all happened? Why did she keep filming? You know, seemingly very calmly. Why did she know ahead of time what was going on? Yeah. Uh, well, and Zapruder similarly kept filming. Yeah, although he was much further away. Yeah. Uh, she was quite close to the street. Um, but yeah, there's lots of questions. And she's, I, I will say this, uh, too, that Beverly Oliver is not the only witness whose account has been questioned, um, and picked apart and kind of discredited. Yeah. Uh, although she is the only one that kind of emerged. Right, right. From a cloud of not knowing who this person was after many years. Well, and there's a growing body of scientific study uh, examining how eyewitness, yeah, eyewitness testimony is often vastly inaccurate. Yeah, I mean, and that's shown, like I said, in some of the other accounts of that day by eyewitnesses. I forget the name of the woman who, um, at one point, I think it was that same day she gave an interview where she was talking about a dog in the road. 
and there was no dog in the road. And so, you know, some people have used that to discredit her, but others have said basically what you say, that eyewitnesses don't always clearly remember what's happened, especially at a very sort of watershed shocking event. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beverly Oliver has even said at various times that she didn't really remember a lot of that day and she only came to these memories under hypnosis, which has that's made a, other people kind of, yeah. I mean, that's a whole other thing. So we may never know the truth. And I feel like the further and further we get away from that day, I mean, we're 50 years out now, Yep. the less and less likely we will ever know. Well, and it's at uh, this point, Babushka Lady could be deceased. Right. Yeah. We don't know. Well, it's, we're 50 years out now. At this point, we have like an official version of the story that has been official for quite some time. Although it's been questioned by other official entities. Yeah, it has uh, been questioned. Um, But it's also been so deeply scrutinized, I think maybe more deeply scrutinized and more persistently scrutinized than any other event in modern American history. Yeah, I mean, I think in the the modern equivalent is sort of 9-11, and 50 years after that, it'll be very interesting to be able to compare that and what's going on in terms of investigation and questioning still, because I'm sure it will still be happening to this at its 50-year mark, and where will we be? And unfortunately, because, you know, so many of the players in the JFK assassination were dead within, you know, a short period of time, we can't ever question them. Right. Uh, so. Maybe forever. Probably. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll switch gears because I have some really fun listener mail. Please read it. I will. It made me laugh so hard. Uh, this actually came to us via Facebook, and it's from our listener, Amanda. Uh, and it is in response to our Haunted Mansion episode. Uh, she says, I never felt I had anything outstanding to tell you about, but after listening to your recent podcast on the history of the Haunted Mansion, I knew I had something unique to contribute. And boy, does she. It's so fun. Uh, she says, my grandpa's best friend, Cy, and one of those family friends that are just known as my Uncle Cy, was the head of sanitation for Disneyland in the early years. This was a really important job because Mrs. Disney stipulated that the park had to be immaculate, unlike the other fairs and parks at the time. So Cy was entrusted with a very big job and would tell us cool stories about the early years of the park. So when I listened to your podcast on the Haunted Mansion and how the creators had played pranks on the cleanup crew... I had to giggle because I had heard that story before, but from the janitor's perspective and how Cy had to defend his poor staff, even though he knew it was just in good fun. Okay, I love that so much because you never hear that angle. Like we always hear the Roly Crump story about how, you know, they got the note about how you couldn't, you would have to clean up your own space. But when you think about it from the janitor's side, like just trying to protect his people from these shocking and scary moments, I see it. Uh, and she says, I wanted to leave you with my favorite story he ever told, though. So back in the very beginning of the park's creation, when things were pretty secretive about what was happening there, my Uncle Cy would do all kinds of odd jobs for the company to get everything set up and was always told that he needed to keep a low profile on what he was doing. One of these jobs did not go as planned. Cy was trusted to move some of the animatronic animals for the Jungle Cruise from the studio where they were created to their new home in Adventureland. So Cy loaded the animals into a big truck and covered the top and sides of the tarp so no one could see through the slats of the truck. But as he was driving along the highway, the tarp became unhinged and everyone could see the tigers, elephants, and giraffes all piled up in his truck together. The people driving along next to him and passers-by gave him very confused and concerned looks. One man seemed to fear for Cy's life and shouted to him that he was a tiger in his truck, that there was a tiger in his truck. Cy just replied, it's okay, I know. The man turned white. Cy just laughed. 
Uh, I hope this gives you a little more insight into the park development, and I hope to hear more great stuff from History from the Podcast. I love that. It's so fun. Yeah. And I have to say, I love the janitorial staff at Disneyland specifically, and here is why. Tell me. Because when you run a race at Disneyland, which I do a lot... The janitorial staff will put up these huge banners when you're running through the backstage area that say, say like, things like, Disneyland Sanitation cheers you. And they are all out there at, like, you know, six in the morning, cheering for strangers, reading your name off your bib and clapping. And they're all just so awesome. They'll high-five everybody as you go by. Like, they are just a great group of people. Holly is tearing up. I do. I love it. It's one of my favorite parts whenever I do a race there. That's always like when I know I'm coming around that corner to the sanitation office, I'm always like, I love this part. Because it's always really fun. They're strangers who treat you like family. Well, and I'm glad Uncle Sly was a good boss who wanted, you know, to protect his crew from undue stress. And his legacy is that their sanitation department is still awesome. Yep. Love it. If you want to write to us, stories that will make me misty-eyed and weepy in a good way, uh, you could do so at historypodcast.discovery.com. You can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff, on Twitter at mistinhistory, and at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. We are also always pinning things on Pinterest. If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our website and just type in the letters JFK in the search bar, and one of the first articles you will see is Who Killed JFK? Which examines some of the controversy and conspiracy around various findings and stories and accounts of the events of that day. Well, and by the time this episode airs, we should also have a brand new article that's about JFK conspiracy theories. Fantastic. Yeah. So if you want to read those or almost anything else your mind can think about, uh, we have an article for it, and that is on our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.